0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Drinking has been a part of social and cultural activities for centuries. And with it, the problems of alcohol-related harm, which continue to be a major health issue. But overall drinking rates are starting to go down and perceptions around alcohol appear to be shifting as we learn more about what it does to the body. So could alcohol ever go the way of cigarettes and become socially unacceptable? That's our focus today on Future Tense. Hello, I'm Jennifer Leake.
0: Am I drinking too much? How much is too much? What would life be like if I didn't drink? What would other people think if I didn't drink? although I haven't had any seriously devastating life consequences, what is the real impact of my drinking on my well-being, on my self-esteem, on my mood, on my sleep? Ruby Warrington came
1: up with the term sober curious to describe someone who is questioning their relationship with alcohol. It happened to Ruby in her mid-30s.
0: Did I stop drinking at that point? No, of course I didn't. (laughs) As so many people who've kind of been sober curious and perhaps didn't have the terminology for it before will probably recognize these kind of questioning process leading to perhaps maybe maybe trying to make some rules about drinking. Oh, I won't drink during the week. I'll only drink two glasses of wine. I won't drink spirits after a certain time of night. Whatever your rules might be, these kinds of rules are very familiar to people who've maybe tried to moderate or curb their drinking. So what followed, I think, was an extended period of of trying to moderate. Two years later, I actually did go to a couple of AA meetings mm. because I'd realised that there were certain situations where... I, it felt like I was powerless over alcohol. I just I, deser- I determined I wasn't going to drink tonight. And then I had a drink and I'd wake up the next morning just hating myself. But what I encountered in those AA meetings was not anything akin to what I was experiencing. I heard people talking about those very devastating rock bottom moments that we associate with problem drinking that I still hadn't experienced myself. So that didn't feel like the place for me. And it was a year later, another year later, that I decided to host my first official kind of sober curious meetup, which at the time was just a group of friends in my apartment, I decided it would be really helpful actually to speak to some other people who on the outside appeared to be what you might call normal social drinkers, but who I suspected just from conversations we'd had or comments they'd made might have been asking some of the same questions as me. And that inspired me to host my first public facing event, which attracted 80 people the first event. So I was like, okay, there were quite a few people who were who were sober curious, it seems. Those events I hosted um, probably three or four times a year over the next couple of years, I had 250 people show up to the last event I hosted at the end of 2018, at which point I had pitched a book and the sober curious movement was that as we as we know it now was kind of being seeded.
1: Alcohol-related harm continues to be a big problem in Australia, but overall consumption is declining. Young people in particular are drinking less than previous generations. And the science around the long-term impacts of alcohol is getting
0: clearer and getting wider attention. Ten years ago... We were still more likely to see a report touting the benefits of an occasional glass of red wine. Mm. It's actually only really been in the past few years that we've seen more, um, the medical sort of profession come down more on the side of no alcohol is a toxin in any quantity. That's more the sort of message that we're getting now. Mm. That's actually a relatively new development. Keep in mind, I've been monitoring this quite closely. We know that um, alcohol and ethanol in particular is considered to be a class one carcinogen and that is because the evidence is really strong of the, of the link between alcohol use and cancer risk.
1: Claire Hughes is chair of the Cancer Council's Nutrition, Alcohol and Physical Activity Committee.
0: There is a really clear mechanism for how alcohol would contribute to, to cancer risk. That is associated with some seven different types of cancer, so cancers of the mouth and throat and pharynx and larynx, as well as breast cancer, which is some one that you know is is more hormonal related, and bowel and liver cancer as well.
1: The guidelines around what is considered low risk drinking have changed in recent years as well. Professor Steve Alsop is from the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University.
2: If you want to drink in a low risk way, it's no more than four standard drinks on a single occasion. Mm -hmm. And it's not the self poured standard drink that people think they have. It's it's about 100, 120 mils of wine, depending on the the strength of the alcohol and uh, no more than 10 standard drinks during a week. And they recommend you have a couple of days off a week. Uh, And that wasn't in the previous guidelines. That's really so that it doesn't become routine and you start becoming dependent. But they're not safe levels. I, I often have to remind colleagues they'll say, oh safe drinking is it's, that's not that's not the term that's used. It's drinking in a low risk way and it's only for people who are healthy and for people who are not about to operate machinery and not about to go surfing and mm. not about to drive their car and and who are pregnant.
3: Humanity for millennia has wrestled with the benefits and disbenefits of alcohol and clearly uh, you know, we as a species have found some benefit of alcohol, otherwise, we wouldn't have consumed it, uh, and set up the extraordinary industry that exists.
1: This is Terry Slevin, CEO of the Public Health Association of Australia.
3: But by the same token, along with that, we've quickly figured out some of the disbenefits, and science has continued to point to a range of other long term disbenefits. I mean, one of the things that uh, I've been conscious of for some time, and the International Agency for Research on Cancer published data back in 1988, telling us that alcohol consumption contributed to cancer risk. Uh, when I was working in the cancer field in the 1990s, it struck me as extraordinary that no one seemed to ever talk about this. No one ever seemed to link alcohol consumption with cancer risk, even though the epidemiology was telling us that story very clearly. And since that time, the evidence has further accumulated, and that's another long-term effect. But That's also linked to the fact that, you know, as we live now into our 80s and beyond, we live long enough to experience those chronic effects of alcohol consumption, and science is able to capture that data.
1: Mm.
3: So that's just one of the additional adverse effects, uh, you know, on top of the ones that have been around forever, the public disorder, the violence, the accidents, the injuries, and so on.
4: When you look across the whole history of substances, there are cycles. Things go up and things go down.
1: Carl Eric Fisher is an addiction physician and a person in recovery. He wrote a book on the history of addiction called *The Urge*. There was a
4: time that alcohol prohibition was very popular worldwide, and um, uh, it didn't stamp out alcohol, obviously. But it was, in many ways, it was more the sort of change in social consciousness rather than the laws that change people's drinking behaviors. It's certainly not impossible that alcohol goes through a cycle and then it gets less popular. On the other hand, you know, alcohol is older. It's deeper in our cultural and social consciousness. The alcohol and fermented beverages have been around as early as we can find them. Mesopotamian soldiers got paid in beer rations, and there's a lot of drinking in the Bible for good and for evil. Whereas cigarettes, you know, we tobacco has been around for a, a long time. Also, tobacco came back in the early modern period after the first voyage of Columbus. But the hand rolled cigarette and the mechanized production of cigarettes as a really widespread and heavily marketed commodity is young. It's young in human history. That that also is basically around a hundred years old. You know, I remember there were smoking sections and my parents smoking at dinner when I was growing up in the 1980s and the early 1990s before that all turned. Are there going to be drinking and no drinking sections in restaurants or would we have a lot of non-alcoholic bars? Like, You know, those things kind of exist in certain – there's a non-alcoholic bar in the trendy section of – hipster brooklyn
3: Mm.
4: it's great i'm glad it's there you know as somebody who doesn't drink i'm happy to be able to go to it but it's it's harder for me to imagine that that shift taking place uh just because alcohol is so so deep in Mm. our culture
1: alcohol has a powerful impact on the brain it affects the levels of several neurotransmitters including dopamine which is associated with pleasure and reward and GABA, which is involved in producing the relaxing effects of alcohol.
4: There are some drugs that are very discreet. They activate one receptor, they go in, and they, they, they have a relatively small effect. Mm. Alcohol is like a shotgun spraying across many different neural receptor systems, some of which are very powerfully sedative. They're similar to benzodiazepines. What those drugs do is powerfully sedative and calming, Uh, And it's actually the reason that alcohol withdrawal is very dangerous, is that when you remove that sort of brake, we take your your foot off the brake, so to speak, in a neural way, then the brain gets overexcited and can, can have seizures and other sorts of serious health problems. But ultimately what the brain learns is that alcohol gives some sort of benefit. It, and again, that benefit is heterogeneous. For some people, it's alleviating social anxiety. For other people, it's accessing positive emotions. For other people, it's just fitting in and social compliance. Uh, but the learning system learns to anticipate the reward of alcohol in a different way. It's not so much about the the experience of the alcohol, it's more about the anticipation and the wanting and the chase of it all. Yes. And that's that's where things turn from a sort of impulsive enjoyment-oriented or the media rewards-oriented pattern of use to a more compulsive pattern of use. Compulsive not meaning without any choice or free will, but compulsive meaning more that the habit tracks or have worn very deep grooves and, and somebody starts to really salivate and anticipate and plan and anticipate the, the benefits of alcohol in a really powerful way.
5: My name is Dr. Inika Whiteman. I'm a neuroscientist. I've been studying the human brain for over 20 years in lots of different capacities. As adults, we have a few drinks. It's just part of our lifestyle, particularly in Australia. You have a few drinks... But as the gears shift and things get stressful and we go through the usual ups and downs of life, financial strain, you know, sick family members, what have you, we turn more and more to alcohol to sort of take that edge off and to give us that little bit of stress release. But I think as we do that, it's almost like the treadmill is speeding up and speeding up and we can't get off it. The faster it's going, sort of the more we're relying on on alcohol Mm -hmm. until we find ourselves at this point where we actually can't get off. It's very hard to get off once you have fallen into the habits and the lifestyle choices of just always having a drink where, you know, you can't go to an event or have a stressful day without it leading to the popping open of a wine bottle. And I think making people aware that it is actually tapping into those addiction pathways of your brain. The more you do it, the longer you do it, the harder it is for those addiction pathways to be broken and it can lead to very real and long-term health problems.
1: Professor Steve Alsop from the National Drug Research Institute says we have a binary notion of alcohol and it can obscure some of the harms drinking can cause.
2: There's a few people who are alcohol abusers, Mm. um, alcohol dependents, and I'm not one of those. And if you ask people what a heavy drinker is, it's always someone who drinks more than them. That binary model means that we don't see ourselves at risk. And so we don't listen to prevention messages and we're not receptive to the idea that maybe we should think about our drinking and do a bit more. And I think first we have to challenge that notion that it's only alcohol dependent people who have drinking problems Mm. or adverse consequences of drinking. And I think that is changing a little bit, but I think we have to do more to change it. It's convenient to have a model that says, well, it's just a small number of people and we need to look after them, but the rest of us can drink with immunity. Mm. But that's not the reality. Most people who drink would look back and be able to identify some occasions when something happened that they weren't proud of, they were embarrassed by, or put themselves or other people at risk. It might not happen a lot, but there's so many people that that happens to occasionally that that contributes significantly to the public health issues that we have in our community.
4: Today's science really doesn't support a clear dividing line between healthy an alcoholic. The, we're still struggling to make the judgment call of when do we call it a problem and how do we make sense of that sort of confusing gray area between extreme addiction and sort of everyday drinking. Uh, but there's a whole spectrum of people with alcohol problems, and mm. uh, it, it's not just me. I think you know it's a it's a it's a sort of binary story that has. Um, not been a helpful one for public understanding and getting people into into the kinds of help that might be most beneficial for them.
1: Tobacco is still a leading cause of preventable death and it's generally considered more harmful than drinking alcohol in moderation. It's one of the reasons why the public health strategies for alcohol are different. But the factors that got in the way of reducing smoking rates are also barriers to getting big changes in policies around alcohol. Social acceptability, economic interests and a lack of political will. Here's Terry Slevin from the Public Health Association of Australia.
3: And I remember when I first started in public health in the 1980s and you'd have a meeting with a decision maker at low, medium or high level and very quickly you'd know whether that person was a smoker or not. Either you'd smell it on there or there'd be the packet of Winfield Blue sitting in the top pocket. Mm. Uh, and uh, that personal filter is a very powerful one. Uh, and that's the same with public policy makers today uh, and alcohol. It's, in fact, the same with a health professional. Professionals and alcohol as well. Um, having discussions about the uh, uh, further controls with regard to alcohol, whether it's on pricing or availability or even policies in the workplace. Um, you can see it in people's eyes when you raise it. And it's, I've had a lifetime of experience of this, um, where if you make a, an argument that says, for example, at a dinner at a conference should not have wine on the table and waiters running around the room topping up glasses, but rather if people want to drink, they're welcome to do so, but they just need to go to the bar and buy their own. And we know simply by making that change, less alcohol is consumed. But I've had many a debate with very credentialed scientists at very senior levels and medical professionals who are uncomfortable with mm. that change in policy because I think there's a level at which it confronts their own alcohol consumption and behavior. And uh, if they feel as though their own behavior is in question, then there's always that dissonance, the cognitive dissonance. These are people who understand the science and know it very well, but still, don't like being made to feel uncomfortable in reflecting upon their own consumption behavior. Uh, and that's certainly the case for decision makers, politicians, policy makers in government. Uh, and uh, that's, that cognitive dissonance is a very real factor that I've
2: seen you know, loud and clear for more than 30 years. I blame the advertisements, the glamor, um, the association of worldly success with smoking, and the association of sport with smoking which is quite wrong. What do you mean by the rights of non-smokers? Well, I suppose in simple terms, I mean the rights of non-smokers to breathe an atmosphere that is not polluted by cigarette smoke. Um, These days, there are perhaps no such things as non-smokers. We're either active smokers, i.e. we smoke Voluntarily, or we're passive smokers inhaling other people's cigarette smoke. How dangerous!
1: These are is comments from a doctor, to a doctor, doctor talking passage. to the ABC's This Day Tonight program in the mid 1970s. This notion of the rights of non-smokers seems a little strange to us now, but it had a huge impact on the debate around tobacco. The movement started in the US in the early 1970s. Sarah Milov is a historian. Her book is called The Cigarette, A Political History.
6: So, the real, in a sense, creative genius in terms of tobacco regulation does not come from scientists and does not come from, God knows it doesn't come from uh, legislators. It comes from these grassroots anti tobacco activists. Uh, many of whom are you know, women who may or may not work inside the home, who basically say it is not fair and it is not right that the social default when we go out anywhere, especially when we go out with our children, is that you know smoking is permitted everywhere. They know that Congress is not going to do anything for them. They are wise to believe that even at first city councils aren't going to do much for them. So they start just petitioning local establishments you know, writing letters to doctor's offices and just saying, hey, would you consider banning smoking in your office? And many of them do it. They design the now ubiquitous no smoking sign. And their real goal is to, in their own words, make smoking socially unacceptable. You know, they achieve a success in generating this language of non-smokers rights and shifting the social default so that it's possible for more and more people to just say out loud, you know, I'm a non-smoker.
1: The recognition of the dangers of passive smoking has been instrumental in achieving smoke-free laws, tobacco advertising bans, and health warnings. But as Carl Eric Fisher explains, it's much harder to hold alcohol to account in the same way. Part of the
4: problem, I think, is that in the case of cigarettes, People were able, in in a legal context, to trace a very clear line from cigarette use to lung cancers. And then there's a legal history of explicit cases. And I think that would be harder to do in the case of alcohol. Alcohol has tremendously negative public health effects, Mm. uh, causes major problems, increases the risk of cancer, increases the risk of all sorts of other complications. But it's it's not as clear... Of a relationship, one to one. You know, law is really fascinating. In specific legal cases, are fascinating because it's a place where big questions about culture and society meet the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, the law is absolutely must make a decision about one individual. What is this person's risk? What caused their cancer? What caused this problem? So forth and so on. I just—it's possible, perhaps, but I—you know—I think it's a—it's a heavier lift to, to hold alcohol to account.
1: Nicotine addiction is still a massive public health challenge and vaping is causing a whole set of new problems. But the cultural norms around smoking have changed enormously. Have a listen to these comments from Dr Earl Hackett in the mid-1970s. At the time, he was chair of the Anti-Cancer Council's Scientific Advisory Committee. He was speaking to the ABC about the prospect of banning smoking in bars
3: we certainly support the views of non-smokers who who don't like people smoking right close to them in an ill-considered way but you couldn't possibly legislate uh, to uh, change well you could suggest you could suggest though do you think are smokers the sort of people who would follow that suggestion if if a sign said in a bar no smoking in this bar i think smokers pay less and less attention to non-smoking signs. I I see people in public transport in uh, non-smoking seats or non-smoking carriages. Smoking, they pay no attention to it. So already the system isn't working all that effectively and ideas to extend the scheme are probably nothing more than a pipe dream. But smokers could help with a little consideration. As Dr Hackett says, you can't legislate for good manners.
1: Terry Slevin says His pipe dream when it comes to alcohol is lifting the legal drinking age from 18 to 21.
3: There's really strong evidence that jurisdictions that have a minimum drinking age of 21 have far less alcohol-related harm for those older teenagers and people in their very early 20s in those places where the legal age is 21. I'm not making the case that I think Australia is ready to move the drinking age to 21 because that Culturally ingrained argument that our uh, right of passage to adulthood starts at 18. So that would be a very hard policy to sell. But in terms of the evidence we have, we know that it would reduce alcohol-related harm, particularly for younger people who are often more susceptible in terms of the growth and development of their brain, for example, often more likely to take risks and particularly young men, but it uh, applies to young women as well. You know, maybe in 50 years time, some will play this interview and say, that old bloke didn't know what he's talking about, saying that we'd never get the drinking age to 21 because now we've made it 25, who knows?
1: QUIT, the organisation to help Australians give up smoking, was set up in 1985. At the time, you could smoke at workplaces, on planes, inside restaurants, even in hospitals. The challenges in reducing alcohol consumption are a lot more complex than tobacco. But will future generations be shocked we didn't act with what we already know?
2: For a lot of people, alcohol is a passport to behaviours that they otherwise wouldn't exhibit. Our tolerance for intoxicated behaviour is changing, and it should. Mm. Alcohol is not an an explanation or an excuse for violence, physical, verbal or otherwise. We can and should change uh, the acceptance of inappropriate risk-taking behaviour that impacts on other people. That's largely what drove changes in smoking. That argument had a big impact. And I think what I can see happening in the next 10 years is the possibility of significantly reducing um, alcohol, having regulations about alcohol that are about public health. The only reason we've got liquor licensing is to regulate alcohol because it's not an ordinary commodity, it's a drug.
4: Could alcohol go the way of cigarettes yeah. where there are more extreme bans and more concrete restrictions? Mm. And the answer is probably no. So then what? If we're not going to ban it, if we don't have a simple solution, or a simpler solution like we had with uh, cigarettes, then what can we do? That That's where things get very complicated and very messy in terms of not just public health messaging, but the changing consciousness around alcohol. And I think that's the thing that makes it really challenging, that um, it's not just a historical accident that alcohol is important to human society. It's not just that like we're a bunch of primates that happen to come across fermentation Five thousand years ago or six thousand years ago, is that people use drugs for reasons. And that's a fact that's been really powerfully obscured by these sorts of simplistic views of addiction. Since the beginning of time, people have had difficulty coming together and connecting in community and letting their guard down and having fun and just finding some solace from what is sometimes a very difficult and challenging world. So if you take away alcohol, then what? You know people, there And there are healthy ways and there are healthier societies uh, looking across country by country data. Uh, there, there are societies that have big problems with alcohol and big problems with binging, and there are societies that seem to have fewer problems. And so then the question becomes a much more nuanced one, but a really, really crucial one and a one worth exploring, which is how can we develop a healthier relationship to these substances? You know, in a way, I'm lucky. A lot of people, I think, in recovery are lucky because it, things become very simple. I get to take the easy way out, in a way. Mm. I get to be very, very simple about it. But that's not appropriate for everyone. And so I'm not a prohibitionist. I think that alcohol is is here to stay in some way. But so then, how can we develop a healthy relationship to it?
0: I think that alcohol does provide very specific, quote unquote, benefits that surpass the benefits we get from smoking. It's a social lubricant. It's that stress relief. It's that end of the week, just off switch. Mm we don't get those same level of benefits from smoking. And so I think it actually, as a culture, we are gonna remain pretty attached to alcohol. If anything, what I hope is that we'll become more conscious around our drinking habits um, and start to use alcohol or approach alcohol with more caution and use alcohol in ways that is less harmful to us. For some people, for many people, that will probably mean not drinking at all because it is a highly addictive, highly toxic substance. And I think normalizing not drinking as a positive lifestyle choice for anybody, regardless of whether you've had a problem with alcohol or not, is gonna be a huge gain
1: Ruby Warrington is an author, editor and podcaster. She came up with the term sober curious. Carl Eric Fisher is an addiction physician and a person in recovery. His book on the history of addiction is called The Urge. Also in the program, Professor Steve Alsop from the National Drug Research Institute. Claire Hughes is chair of the Nutrition and Physical Activity Committee at the Cancer Council of Australia. Sarah Milov is the author of Cigarette, A Political History, and also in the program, Terry Slevin, CEO of the Public Health Association of Australia. I'm Jennifer Leake. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.